Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Sports MedCast, brought to you by the American Medical Society for Sports Medicine. My name is Dr. Scott Young, and with me is Dr. Blair Becker. How's it going, Blair? Going well. How are you, Scott? Doing great. Doing great. I'm excited about today's episode. We're going to be talking about injections, joint injections, talking a little bit about the shoulder and the elbow and the knee, the good, the bad, and the ugly of these injections. And I'll tell you what, I know that you and I have taken a deep look into the literature to try to dig out some pearls about the value of these injections. But to help keep us grounded on this topic, we've asked Dr. Matt Gammons, the Vice President of the American Medical Society for Sports Medicine and the Director of Sports Medicine for the Vermont Orthopedic Clinic, and a guy who knows a lot about a lot of different stuff. He's here today to keep us clinically grounded and hopefully really tease out some great information that we can all use the next time we work in the clinic. Thanks for joining us, Matt. Yeah, it's my pleasure, guys. Thanks for having me. So let's get started. Blair, I know this is a tough and controversial topic. Do you think that we can handle it? Well, you know, I think in keeping with uh, the topic of tonight's podcast, we should give it a shot. (laughs) Nice. So, Scott, I'll start with asking a question to you, which is, you know, subacromial steroid injections are something that we all do, and we do them pretty frequently for a range of things from shoulder pain to um, rotator cuff pathology or impingement. Is there really, in your look at the at the literature, is there evidence to support this? It's interesting. Actually, pretty consistently in a couple of different Cochrane reviews, there is a small short-term benefit for subacromial injection to treat rotator cuff disease for steroids. Um, however, this improvement is not necessarily better than non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, physical therapy, or both in the in- intermediate to long-term uh, setting. Now, Interestingly, there was a Cochrane review from 2012 that was looking specifically at ultrasound-guided injections, but that study showed no difference in pain reduction when they used an ultrasound to guide that injection to the subacromial space versus just sticking the injection into the gluteal muscle. So, Dr. That, Gammons, that i got to ask not you this kind of That is not close to the shoulder, Scott. <laughs> no, no, it is definitely not. And really, Dr. Gammons, i got to ask you, This begs the question, does it really matter where we put the steroid when it comes to rotator cuff pain or impingement? Well, I I mean, I think, again, this is a a difficult question to answer. If you look at the literature that you guys reviewed, one of the problems is is that probably not all rotator cuff disease is the same. And and many of the studies do not really classify patients as to whether or not they had tendinopathy versus... Uh, true bursitis versus partial tears versus, you know, some other, you know, disease. And so it makes it a little difficult uh, to assess. I also think that, you know, there is clearly some systemic benefit to corticosteroids. So intramuscular steroids probably help on a systemic level. So even though that study showed that there's no difference between ultrasound guided and and injection into the, uh, the gluteal region, it's a little bit tough to read because I think it, it clearly shows that, look, we all know that if somebody gets Depomedrol into the deltoid for a systemic issue like asthma, it's going to help. Sure, sure. Yeah, so, Scott, I think to to go along with that, if we can actually hone in on one specific diagnosis so we know what we're dealing with 
and that's something like frozen shoulder adhesive capsulitis. Is there benefit to doing a steroid injection for that specific problem? That's a great question. And, you know, interestingly, and I think we're going to find this as a theme with steroid injections, but similar to subacromial injections, intraarticular steroid injections for adhesive capsulitis do provide pretty decent pain relief in the short term, especially that first six-week period. But in the longer term, the results may not be a lot different than other treatments like physical therapy, nonsteroidals, et cetera, or placebo. But what is interesting is when you start looking at capsular distension in addition to steroid injection. So for capsular distension, where you're putting a lot of fluid in there, it's usually normal saline, there appears to be short to intermediate term. So now you're getting outside that six-week period and looking at more like maybe 12 weeks benefit for pain, range of motion, function, the number needed to treat of two to three, which, of course, depends on what outcome you're looking at, um, if you're adding that distension to the steroid. So this is interesting, but then when you look at how much saline you got to stick in there, I mean, you're looking at a volume of up to 90 milliliters, um, and it's got to be pretty accurately guided to, to do the job. So that's, that's tough, and obviously there's some discomfort associated that with, with that injection. So, Dr. Gammons, I want to ask you, I mean, this, the literature seems to support this, steroids, and then steroids uh, plus capsular distension possibly for the adhesive capsulitis. Is that something that you do? Is that something that you recommend? What are your thoughts? Well, I think a couple of things. To back up a little bit, I mean, one of the problems we have in sports medicine and musculoskeletal medicine is many things will improve over time on their own. So when you look at long-term outcomes, many, many interventions wash out. So then it becomes the short-term intervention becomes, was it really worth it to the patient? And I think that's going to be very individual. So when I sit down with someone with adhesive capsulitis, we basically go through the information that you just gave and sort of we come to a shared decision-making as, is this procedure worth it to give you short-term benefit, knowing that long-term that we're going to end up at the same place probably. That's interesting. So do you, when you're having that conversation with them, are you using that as a tool to perhaps help them or to facilitate physical therapy, which may be too painful for them, but you you really want them to pursue that perhaps more aggressively? Or is that, again, just one of the parts of the conversation that you're having with your patient? Yeah, I think it's less about physical therapy for me if you look at the sort of the value in, of physical therapy and adhesive capsulitis overall, and it's more about how severe and how limiting are my symptoms. So if I have nuisance-level symptoms, yeah, it's annoying, my shoulder's stiff, and it hurts a little bit. Now, that's not really probably worth the more aggressive intervention. But if I'm having, you know, moderate to severe symptoms and I'm really, really limited, then, you know, the patient may choose to try to get some relief in the short term, even though they understand, again, in the long term it may not make a difference. So, Scott, right. I think another another place where this short-term versus long-term comes up is for alternative injections, sometimes called regenerative injections, so not steroid maybe not even a uh, volume injection, but things like PRP. Did you see any uh, literature supporting this? You know, at this point, there really isn't any great moderate to high-quality evidence to support other injections, including PRP, whether you're talking about the rotator cuff or intraarticular or otherwise. Most of the shoulder-specific PRP studies are in surgical repair, and with the most recent being in an October 2014 publication in the American Journal of Sports Medicine. And really, 
there was really no difference in clinical result to retear rate. So, and there's, again, a Cochrane review from 2014, which sort of generally looked at PRP and musculoskeletal soft tissue injury, um, and including impingement and other rotator cuff pathology. And again, really no difference at this time. Okay, that's good to know. Uh, Dr. Gammons, before we move on, we'd, uh, we'd be remiss if we didn't mention that the AMSSM has recently put out a consensus statement on ultrasound guidance uh, that says, really, current studies show that ultrasound guidance for these subacromial injections are more efficacious uh, than landmark-guided injections or oral steroids for shoulder pain. They made some good points about side effects of of landmark-based injections. Um, But there was really no good evidence that looking at ultrasound-guided intraarticular injections. Um, any comments about about those uh, about that consensus statement? Well, I mean, I think it, you know, certainly it was the largest sort of, I think, highest quality review in terms of looking at, you know, does it make a difference? And, I, and obviously that's the big question, right? If we're going to use ultrasound, we know we're more accurate, but is it clinically going to make a difference? Um, and I think, you know, this is an area that we need to move forward with in terms of the research. I think the research, if you look at it as a global group is trending a little bit to saying, hey, look, it does look like being more accurate, and particularly with intraarticular injections, uh, probably is going to be more beneficial for patients. But I also think it depends a little bit on what you're using. And certainly, as we discussed earlier, steroids clearly have some systemic effect, so sometimes close enough is probably good enough versus Mm -hmm. other things that may have less sort of regional effect and more local effect, such as the visco-supplementation or some of the other sort of alternative things that you were just talking about. When you guys were talking, when we were talking about, you know, rotator cuff and, you know, PRP, if you really look at how PRP works, it doesn't make sense that in the acute surgical setting it's going to help because what you're essentially doing in the acute surgical sense, uh, in the acute setting of rotator cuff repair, is you're drilling hole into the bone to release marrow and all the stuff that already, all the stuff, the healing stuff is already there. And there's a saturation of receptors that goes on at every level. And so that adding PRP to the setting of an acute surgical intervention probably doesn't make a whole lot of sense. If you look sure. at the chronic, chronic tendon injuries, and there's, a, you know, the best evidence, of course, is for lateral epicondylosis, there is some evidence that would trend to say, hey, listen, you know, if you are stuck in this sort of chronic phase and you're not improving in the time course that we would expect, that these adjunctive therapies, whether it be prolotherapy or platelet-rich plasma therapy, they may be able to sort of shorten the course, even though, as we discussed earlier, eventually the natural trend is for these things to get better on their own. But the question is, can we make them better in six months, or is it going to be two years or four years before they get better? Yeah, and really re- reinitiate that inflammatory response. Yeah, well, exactly. So, and Matt, We know the natural trend of these chronic tendon injuries is they get better. I myself had an Achilles tendinopathy, non-insertional. It took five years for it to go away, but it went away. And so when you look long-term at any of these interventions, all of them are going to kind of wash out because the natural history is that it gets better. But if you can make a patient better in six months versus two years, well, I think there is some clinical benefit to that, and that's the discussion that you have to have individualized with the patient. Sure. All right, that was some great information. Thanks, Matt. Let's move on to the elbows since we've touched the high points of the shoulder. 
Blair, let me ask you, you know, lateral epicondyle injections are extremely common, specifically steroid injections, really common, especially in the primary care setting. Is there any evidence to back this practice up? Are we doing harm here? Yeah, Scott, I don't know if you've if you've kind of seen this um, filter through to practice, but I certainly have in some of my colleagues that steroid injections for lateral epicondylitis have really kind of fallen out of favor. And it was interesting to look at the literature to see that there's some good evidence to support that trend. Uh, specifically, steroid injections, uh, they, they may provide some short-term relief uh, over the first four to six weeks, but consistently have poor long-term outcomes and may even make patients worse in terms of pain and function. So along those lines, Dr. Gammons, have we put the final nail in the coffin for steroid injections and lateral epicondylosis, or is there still some clinical indication for it? I think as much as possible, I've gone to discouraging patients from, you know, steroid injections. But again, I think it goes back to a little bit discussing what we know with the patient. And I will occasionally have somebody, uh, mostly in the work setting, you know, manual labor people and people that are really struggling. And particularly in our area in Vermont, we have a lot of seasonal stuff where they say, look, doc, I've got, I got to get through the next month. And then I've got, you know, time to deal with this. And if they're really having trouble making a living, I think there may be a role for it as long as we're upfront and consistent with the information that we're giving the patient about what that may mean longer and the fact that they're probably going to need some other treatment to get this better. I think that's a, I think that's a great example, and that, that's one of the big reasons that uh, we're so happy to have Dr. Gammons with us because you know, this is really reconciling the evidence-based medicine with you know, taking care of actual patients and the needs that they have. So I think that's a great uh, anecdote to, to kind of drive that home. Uh, Scott, if I could ask another question, do you think prolotherapy uh, uh, has a place in the treatment of lateral epicondylosis? You know, I, I think it does. You know, there's some limited evidence to support it. But what's really nice is it really doesn't show any evidence that it makes it worse. It's unclear if it's any better than placebo or non-steroidals or physical therapy, or as Dr. Gammon said, in the long term, a lot of these just get better eventually, one way or the other. So it's probably not exactly uh, clear if it's going to make a difference rather than doing nothing or one of these other um, interventions, but it doesn't seem to make it any worse. So it's an option. Interesting. And that's probably something that's going to come more to the forefront as we deal with the vacuum that, you know, taking steroid injections out of the equation largely brings up. Uh, so in that vein, what about PRP or autologous blood injections? So the results for PRP um, and autologous blood injections are similar to prolotherapy, probably some promising evidence, but nothing really clear at this time. However, there is one good RCT showing that PRP may lead to better long-term outcomes. We're looking at about the two-year mark compared to steroids. Um, But when you compare PRP and autologous blood injections head-to-head, they seem to produce similar results. Interesting. So to kind of wrap it all up, Dr. Gammons, do you think, you know, with the, the literature really being mixed on this topic, do you think 
it's time to start using some of these alternative injections like PRP or prolotherapy on a regular basis for lateral epicondylosis? You know, I don't know on a regular basis. I certainly think they're, they're you know, they're tools to add to the toolbox. I think when patients, you know, moderate to severe, moderate to severe symptoms and they're failing everything else, they're reasonable discussions to have with people. I think part of this equation goes to we don't completely understand chronic tendon injury and tendinosis. Um, so we have a little, not very much insight into why it actually develops and why some people have terrible looking tendons and don't hurt and why some people have not so bad looking tendons and they hurt a lot. Um, but, you know, again, I think if you sit down with a patient in front of you and you sort of explain to them that here's what we know and here's what we don't know, that again, you can really come to a good shared to making, uh, shared decision making process of this is something that doesn't seem to have harm. If you're really struggling, it may be something to help push this along faster than it would otherwise, while keeping in mind, as we discussed before, that eventually a lot of this stuff will kind of get better on its own. Sure. And it is nice when you sit down to have that conversation that we have, you know, a, a good sense of the evidence behind a, a few of these different options now. Yeah, and I, I agree. I think that, you know, Dr. Gammons mentions the shared decision-making process. That's, again, a reoccurring theme we're seeing here in these injections, that they have some benefits and some limitations, and that sitting down and talking to them and really making it clear what to expect if they end up getting one of these injections can go a long way. So that's that's some fantastic information. Um, I think that's pretty good coverage of the elbow. Let's Let's move on to the knee. Blair, let me ask you, let's go back to steroids again. It seems to be a go-to management tool for knee osteoarthritis. Is there evidence to support this practice, or are we, again, getting outside the bounds of what we should be doing on a regular basis? Yeah, so I think, Scott, I can, I can probably speak for you that you're doing a few of these injections, and so am I, for osteoarthritis of the knee. And it seems that there is real benefit uh, for, for the first week, certainly. Uh, that's a slam dunk, maybe even up to two or three weeks, uh, but not much beyond that. But I think echoing what Dr. Gammons is saying, when you have that shared decision-making conversation, for someone who has an osteoarthritis flare in the knee and there aren't a ton of options, you know, one to three weeks is not insignificant. Um, so considering, you know, the limited efficaciousness of some other modalities, it's it's not to be um, trivialized, I don't think, but it is it is limited. Sure. Now, you mentioned other modalities there, visco-supplementation, of course, being one of those. Now, visco-supplementation has been kind of in the news as of late. What's the evidence behind that practice right now for primary knee osteoarthritis? So, so conveniently for us, the AMSSM has, has just released a, a scientific statement addressing that question and, and visco specifically and they had a very thorough literature review and gave a, a recommendation for for using visco supplementation for Kelgren Lawrence grade two to three knee osteoarthritis in patients and this is real important above the age of sixty uh, and that's that's really based on high quality evidence below the age of sixty before the age of sixty that's that evidence is downgraded and it's more of a suggestion that you can consider using the these injections. Uh, in that population based on moderate quality evidence, but there seems to be high quality evidence for the use of these uh, for significant OA 
in patients over the age of 60. That's interesting. And I want to get Dr. Gammon's take, but before he weighs in on visco supplementation, can you tell us, Blair, about intraarticular prolotherapy injections and PRP evidence, and then we'll get him to, to really give us the clinical insight on when we should be using any of this stuff. Yeah, so the the prolo question is interesting, and that this was a an interesting uh, rock to turn over in the literature, and it seems like there's actually some evidence behind using Prolo, believe it or not. And there's a, a RCT out of the University of Wisconsin, which has has uh, spawned some training courses specifically for this protocol, which is pretty extensive. Uh, involves a lot of intra and extra articular injection sites for dextrose Prolo, but their study showed that with Prolo. Out to 52 weeks, patients were doing better than a home exercise group. Um, so that's really compelling evidence, and it's understandable why a lot of people are 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 trying to learn that skill set with the with the training that they have available. Um, and then moving on to, to to PRP, it's a little bit less compelling in terms of the evidence at this point that we have uh, for intraarticular PRP for knee osteoarthritis. Um, Although there is some, there there is a study that showed that there's some dramatic improvements with, for especially patients who have mild OA who get PRP into the knee joint, um, and so that that may hold promise. Hmm. So, Dr. Gammons, based on all that, um, visco supplementation, PRP, prolotherapy, and the steroid discussion, of course. Of all these injections, what should we consider using for our knee osteoarthritis patients? Well, and you know, we keep, again, the common theme goes back to sort of that individualized patient, but I think one of the issues that we have is when we talk about sort of the grade of arthritis or mild arthritis, those are radiographic diagnoses in most cases. And one of the things that we have significant lack of understanding is what really causes pain and why do some people have severe changes and have mild pain and why do some people have mild changes and have severe pain? Sure. And so understanding, you know, the fact that we don't completely understand that makes it difficult. I think, you know, the common sense approach is, you know, listen, you know, the younger the patient, the more severe the symptoms the more things we want to try to help them manage before we move to the end game, which is total joint replacement. Right. And the older the patient and, you know, the more sort of affected they are, well, you know, in the end, we know that knee replacement is relatively reliable. And if you're in an age group where you're looking at one lifetime surgery versus potentially a surgery and then a replace, you know, then a revision surgery, I think you're less apt to move to the less proven stuff, such as, you know, PRP and Prolo. Um, but, again, I think, you know, I have patients that are, you know, in their mid to late 70s, early 80s that have kind of that moderate symptoms that don't really want surgery. And I think having a discussion with them about the evidence is a very reasonable thing. Yeah, that's great. And I really like that that's becoming the theme of this conversation is about having that discussion with the patient rather than just saying, here's what we're doing or here's what we should do or whatever. Uh, I, I like I like the idea of having them weigh in on all this stuff. That's fantastic. Um, so, Blair, I think it'd be, we'd be remiss if we didn't step outside the knee joint for just a second and talk a little bit about some extra articular targets. Um, so first, let's just touch base on the Pezanserine and the IT band. 
are those things that we should be targeting with any injections? Yeah, it was interesting, Scott. I, there, there's not a ton of literature, at least not that I could find, in terms of extraarticular targets around the knee, but the IT band especially came up a few times. And pezanserine, the evidence around that is is pretty limited, but there was an interesting study that showed doing injections around the IT band in runners for pain control can be effective. Uh, and But it was important to note in their study that the effect really only occurred between 7 and 14 days after the injection, so certainly not a uh, an acute response. That's great. And again, going back to our theme of having that discussion with your patients, that's a good thing to tell them that it's going to be a week or two before they get any relief. Because if they want an injection for a race tomorrow or the next day, it may not be beneficial for them. So that's great information. So the last big one to talk about, I think, is patellar tendinopathy and PRP. We've heard a lot about it in the media. People talk about it at conferences. What's the evidence behind this practice? Well, I think this is, you know, as Dr. Gammons uh, mentioned, these chronic tendinopathy patients do tend to do a little bit better with PRP. And there are some, there's a few studies that have shown there's some good benefit with PRP uh, for chronic uh, patellar tendinosis. But really the effect didn't show up um, within the first three months. It was more of a long-term benefit, and it raises that question of, you know, we know a lot of these things that we deal with in sports medicine are going to are going to fade with time. It's just a, a matter of timing and whether or not that was a clear benefit. Dr. Gammons, do you think there's anything else here that we should be looking at? I mean, regenerative therapy-wise for the patellar tendon, the evidence all seems to be about the same. Is this, this again, a conversation with the patient about risks and benefits and, and seeing what they think? I, I think absolutely, because you know, one of the things we know, and, and commonly we're seeing people, just like you said, whether it be the IT band or the Pezian Serene or the patellar tendon where they're saying, look, I, I have this upcoming event or I have an in-season athlete. And I think it's very important to explain to them that most of the data shows that if you're in-season or in-training, that we really have very few tools that are going to completely fix what you have in that time frame. Now, if we look at the longer time frame, again, there's some interventions that may help, um, you know, change something. So, again, instead of 24 months, maybe it's six months or nine months. Or, look, I have a lot of pain and I'm having trouble doing my therapy or my exercises and we can calm down pain in the short term, which then may allow the therapy to be more effective. But there isn't the magic bullet that we'd like there to be for particularly a lot of our active patients. Yeah, and I think, you know, one other thing that, that comes up uh, when we're, we're thinking about taking care of patients and the the idea of lowering costs as much as possible and increasing injection efficacy is whether or not ultrasound guidance is warranted, especially in a place like the knee where a lot of folks are still doing a landmark-based injection. And it was interesting, this AMSSM position statement, showed that ultrasound guidance really does lead to improved accuracy of intraarticular knee injections and corresponds to some cost savings and, uh, of course, better injection efficacy if we're getting it to the target. Uh, do you have any thoughts about that, Dr. Gammons, in terms of whether or not ultrasound guidance 
is uh, something that should be used routinely for intraarticular knee injections? Well, I mean, again, I think that the use of ultrasound guidance, as you said, we know it improves accuracy. There's some evidence that's showing that it improves outcomes, which is really the most important thing. I think if you have somebody who obviously has a large knee effusion and you're aspirating fluid, then the role of ultrasound is relatively limited in that setting. Um, if you have a patient who's failed blind injections or you have a patient who, from a landmark standpoint, you're going to have difficulty because the body habitus, then I think the, you know, the evidence is moving more towards ultrasound. But I think in the end, you know, when I talk to patients about any ultrasound guided injection, whether it be intraarticular or tennis injections, you know, I think it goes to good communication plus common sense is really what leads to the optimal outcome. So if I'm not sure what's causing the patient's pain and I really want to know whether or not they get a response to a local anesthetic, well, then I think the ultrasound becomes much more important in that setting clinically. If I already know that they have a diagnosis, then it may become less important from the cost-benefit standpoint uh, based on the individual patient and the joint and the location. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And that's a good point about diagnostic injections as well. Yeah, absolutely. That pretty much wraps up what we had to talk about here today. Dr. Gammons, it's been fantastic having you on this episode. Do you have any other final comments or thoughts regarding some of these injections that we talked about? You know, my only comment is, is what we harped on. I think, again, the best medicine is really communicating to your patients what we know and what we don't know. And when you when you take the time to discuss with the patient, you know, what the potential outcomes are, that really is what leads to the optimal outcome for your patient, which is really what you're looking for. Absolutely. I love it. Fantastic stuff. Well, Dr. Gammons, thank you again for coming on the MedCast with us today. It's been a great episode. We appreciate your time and insight and really grounding some of that literature stuff into good clinical practice. So thanks again for being on the show. Yeah, it's my pleasure, guys. Thank you very much for having me. Blair, that was great. What a great conversation with Dr. Gammons. I really learned a ton during that last half hour. So how about you? Yeah, I did too. I thought I thought Dr. Gammons had a just such a a um easy way to really frame some difficult issues and a a real reasonable approach. I thought one of the things that that stuck with me was how he talks to the athletes who are in season and trying to continue to compete in their season with an injury and he just says up front, you know, we have very few tools to fix this in season if you want to continue competing in this in this sport. And I think, you know, that's something when I think about my practice and you feel a lot of pressure to get something cured during the season. And, and uh, I think it goes back to that shared decision-making theme that he has where he's he's really discussing the, the evidence and and talking about outcomes, frankly, with the patient. And I think that probably leaves them in a in a better position. Yeah, absolutely. And that that is a tough pill to swallow sometimes that, you know what, we just can't fix it and make it better during this season. It just isn't going to happen. It can be pretty challenging. I think the other thing, the other take home from the, this evidence is, especially going back to that gluteal steroid injection, is if I have shoulder pain, I'm staying away from you, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right, fair enough. How about you? What did you learn? Oh, man, I don't know where to start. Um, so I'll try to keep it short, but 
first of all, it seems like in general, steroid injections can be helpful, mostly in the short term, you know, plus or minus six weeks. And there were the caveats we talked about with lateral epicondylosis. And there were some things we talked about with adhesive capsulitis that maybe actually went outside that short term into the intermediate term range. But in general, it seems like if your patient is interested in some short-term relief, especially for job things like Dr. Gannon's talked about, that maybe it's an option that they can really utilize. And then, again, and I hate to keep saying it over and over again, but I just really love the concept of shared decision-making. I think sitting down with your patients, telling them about the options that they have available and being upfront with them about, you know, is it really going to help? Is it going to shorten the disease process? Is it not? Is it just going to give me temporary relief? Like Dr. Gammon said, a lot of this stuff gets better. It just takes a long time. I mean, he said his uh, tendinopathy took almost five years to get better. So, you know, the, if patients know that, I think they can make a better informed decision. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the the other side of of that injection piece is what he the point that Dr. Gammon's raised, you know, a lot of these things will get better on their own, but it may take many years, and the possibility of shortening that duration is significant, uh, especially for patients who who uh, want to have a quicker recovery. Uh, and it just, I think, it, it just goes to show you again that we need some more research on a lot of these injections. Yeah, absolutely. I, definitely a call to arms for research in the regenerative therapies and even some of these steroid injections. So, Man, just some fantastic information. So I think we'll call it a day there. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in to the Sports MedCast. Look forward to talking to you the next time. Bye-bye.